727 of Unwelcome Guests, the Terrorism Surveillance Complex. I'm Robin Upton, and slightly crowded episode this week. We finish our adaptation of Alan Frankovich's Gladio, that is at the end of the first hour and for the whole of the second hour. But first, we're going to hear a talk from 2014. This is from perhaps the most senior NSA whistleblower you've probably never heard of, Diane Rourke, who was on the House Intelligence Committee for 17 years and in charge of the NSA budget. You might think if she blew the whistle, then people would pay attention. Well, who are these people who are going to take note? Uh, People like you and me? Yeah, maybe if we're informed. If we're relying on commercial media, of course, no, it's going to be blacked out. Is it going to be people in the upper echelons, people therefore behoven to the deep state? Well, I don't think so. They're more likely to do what they actually did in her case, launch a complicated system of persecution. But I'll let the woman speak for herself. This is Diane Rourke speaking from 2014. It's hard to squeeze this in, so I'm going to go pretty fast here. But I am here to tell you that our liberty, yours, mine, the entire country's, is at grave risk more than ever since the Civil War, I would say. Our republic is at risk because of this pervasive surveillance. It, it covers every, an unbelievable amount of your life. And there is no way to escape it, unfortunately. We are information that we would not give to our neighbors, perhaps even to our extended family. The government has all of that. They have an enormous amount of information on all of this. And this started with 9-11 and is justified by counterterrorism but has been totally ineffective for counterterrorism. Why? Because there is so much data that they can't make any sense out of it. That's why. Further, the government has begun lying and misleading. They have deliberately kept this out of the courts as much as they could. It's now beginning to get there. They've lied to the Supreme Court twice What would you call this? I would call it corruption. I would say this excessive power has already corrupted our republic and our government. And it's time that we take it back. (laughs) 
So I'll just fill you in a little bit. Jeff gave you a lot of me. Um, I, my education, I went to Catholic University for an, a BA and an MA in international relations. Subsequently, I went to the University of Florida for most of the PhD work. Um, and then I, I be, was employed by the federal government. Unfortunately, in international relations, there aren't a lot of other choices. And I was first at the energy department, the international section of the energy department, where I warned that the Europeans should not sign up for Soviet gas and looked at alternatives. Um, then I went to the Defense Department to the Pentagon. Subsequently, I went to the White House National Security Council staff, where I was in the intelligence section and worked primarily on counterintelligence and also on Soviet violations of the arms control treaties. After that, I went to the House Intelligence Committee, where I stayed for 17 years. In the last five of those years, I had the NSA account, which means that I supervised, uh, I, I was, myself and the Democratic staff were on this, were the primary people on the House side to make sure that NSA was doing things legally, that it was doing things effectively in a financially um, uh, good manner, uh, that they were not skipping things, they were not leaving us at risk, and uh, I would make recommendations for changes to their budget every year. Um, so that's basically my background. What happened was that only a couple of months before I retired in 2002, I found out about this secret program that I was not supposed to know about. And I got a number of sources eventually told me about it. And let me tell you, no matter what they say today, I was told it was not just metadata, it was content. It was dragnet content domestically. Furthermore, they had just then started by the time, by about by July of 2002, they had started collecting in other information, non-communications information on Americans and databasing it. So I'm just going to go down a very quick list of some of the things, this is not exhaustive, but some of the things of yours that they are collecting. Land phones, your cell phones, your emails, your texts, your Skype, your chats, your webcams, your social media postings, the FBI loves them. Postal mail, a huge program on the, on the postal mails. Business records other than communications. The Patriot Act is so broadly worded that they can go to any business and get any record and put a gag order on the owner. So he can't tell you that your records have been seated. Government records have been amassed, which was uh, forbidden under the Privacy Act, but apparently there is a national security exception to that now. So all local and state and federal government records can be amalgamated in, in a federal database. That alone gives them an enormous amount of information about you, including gun licenses, of course. But if you think about it, what is there in this, in this country that 
is a transaction of some sort that is not personal, that is not government or business. They have basically every transaction that you ever make. Remote activation, Jeff covered that. So if they, if they become interested enough in you to make you a target, they can remotely activate your cell phone and turn it into a microphone so they can listen to what your meeting is about. Um, they can locate your cell phone, and sometimes they do this as for everything in one cell phone area to try and narrow it down to who they're looking for, so they're collecting en masse at that, at that a tower. And another one that just came out re just recently is facial recognition. Both the NSA and FBI are big into facial recognition now. They are collecting photos everywhere. The FBI hopes to have 52 million photos by the end of 2015. NSA is collecting them massively also through electronic communications. And that means emails, texts, social media, video conference, driver's licenses, passports, visas, private webcam, videos including large amount, a large amount of sexual pornography. There is no subject and no means too intrusive for them. There is no content that is, that is off limits. Their motto is collect it all, as shown in the Snowden documents. And what they told me before I left was, we're going to own the web. And they do. The Snowden documents have revealed it. They do own the web. As Glenn Greenwald, the primary reporter for the Snowden documents said, there is no place to hide. There is basically almost nothing you can do except for not use electronics, use cash all the time, that might get you in trouble with the IRS, and basically live a, a life of 50 years ago, um, which would make you very inefficient. Now, the administration has argued not to worry, not to worry. There are a lot of protections, and you know, you, you're just fine unless you're doing something wrong. And that's not true at all. First of all, the effective protections were removed. One of the arguments I used when I went around and talked to a lot of people was, this is, this is bad, this is unconstitutional, but at least restore the civil liberties protections that were there to begin with, that they deactivated. And I knew the technology because I had persuaded Congress to pay for it, but it was supposed to be directed against foreign intelligence. And they still have not been restored, and that was automated tracking so that nobody can pull your file off the, uh, off the servers and not have somebody know about it. And the other one was encryption of domestic identities until there is a warrant, an individual warrant in hand. Those were two extremely effective uh, ways to protect privacy if, if necessary, and they still are not in place. So the primary user of much of this data, given that it's domestic surveillance, the primary user is the FBI, not NSA. 
And what we don't know, what we, nobody ever focuses on, is that copies of these databases, of the NSA databases, go to both the FBI and the CIA. Has anybody, to your knowledge, ever asked about controls and accesses to those databases? No. There's not a peep about it. And that's where the trouble really is. Apparently, CIA controlled through them for any reason whatsoever. And the FBI assures us that everything is fine there. So what other, what other checks and balances do we have? Congress. Congress is an abomination on this issue, an absolute abomination. The intelligence committees have been given a lead by the leadership, and the leadership is four square behind the administration on this, and they appoint, they appoint the intelligence committee members. We need new leadership. And then they insist that the only legislation in the House of will or a Senate will consider is legislation from the intelligence committees, which means nothing significant ever happens, including this last bill, which apparently raised more backdoor holes than it solved. What's the other? They also say, oh, you can depend on the courts, the, the FIS, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. They are watching this like a hawk. Well, the fact of the matter is, the FIS cannot deny a warrant. They have not been able to do so since 2008 in a, in a legislation that was uh, passed by Congress. So they cannot deny a warrant. They also give group warrants, not individual warrants, which means, for instance, let's take, take hypothetically a whole area code. If NSA wants to search an entire area code, they can do that if the FISC approves of it, and they basically approve of it. They also, and most people don't know this, have jurisdiction only a very, over only a very small part of the collection that is being done. Why is that? Most of the collection is not done under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act or the Patriot Act. And it is done under executive order, under presidential wartime powers. So this order is called EO 12333, and they are taking a provision that used to appear innocuous and interpreting it as they have reinterpreted everything else to allow them to do basically anything they want. The FISC initially also, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, also initially said that they were unable to stop them because they did not have constitutional powers. They did not have the power to rule on a constitutionality of different things. Colleen Kolar-Catelli was the head judge on that court, and she approved this and didn't tell the other judges for quite a number of years. I asked to see her, to, get, to tell her that there were privacy uh, protections that could be put on it and that she should insist upon uh, doing, and she refused to see me. So did Judge Rehnquist of the Supreme Court. So that's the, the judicial branch. There's no hope there either. Well, there is potentially, but it's going to be years down the road because the Supreme Court has said that they want it to go through all the lower court and appeals courts, and they're only being they're only looking at one small part of the program at a time. 
And this is a massive, massive program. These tactics, I hate to tell you, also trickle down to law and local law enforcement who deal with the FBI and who start uh, doing some of the same things they, they have done, such as sneak and peek searches, which I was subjected to, and which, but which they have never admitted. These, these are supposedly illegal under the law. You have to be notified within seven days normally, or unless you get an extension. They're apparently happening, happening everywhere across the United States by local law enforcement, as well as the FBI. And finally, the NSA data is now being used for criminal investigations, not just for counterterrorism, which was the original purpose. The original purpose of counterterrorism was why to include other foreign intelligence uh, targets as well. But what is not acknowledged, but was well documented in a Reuters article, is that it started being they started giving tips to local law enforcement. For it, and as usual, it starts with drug enforcement. So especially um, uh, international drug couriers and so on. So this is another corruption because the courts themselves have become corrupted because they create a fake evidentiary trail, not admitting that they found this under the NSA surveillance program because if they did, the judge would be able to rule on the constitutionality of it. So everything, in my view, is becoming corrupted. Another thing, is it effective against terrorism? Some people are willing to say the end justifies the means. That if it's, if it's cutting these terrorists down, that's fine. We'll, we'll take it. But it has been known since July of 2009 that it has been completely ineffective against domestic terrorism. That was the date on which the unclassified summary of a study by the five inspectors general of the intelligence community that was requested by Congress, but it apparently didn't read it. That was when it said specifically, we went and asked all the all-source analysts if any of this material had been critical to any counterterrorism case since it began in October of 2001. And they said, no. And since then, Judge uh, Dick Leon has said the same thing, and the president's own panel that he appointed said the same thing. There is one judge that, uh, that went along with the government and everything that disagreed, but it's clear it's not helping. And one of the reasons it's not helping is because they are drowning in their excessive data. They can't make sense of it. They can't automatically target and get targets to, to the analysts to look at. So it is completely ineffective. And just to give you a little more information on what they did to me, I argued with a lot of these people when I went to them, and I went to members, of, to Nancy Pelosi and to Porter Goss on my own committee. I wrote them numerous memos over a three-month period and kept them uh, up, up with what was happening with evolving events 
and kept getting, trying to persuade them to do something about it because they, they were among the gang of four who had been briefed on it. Um, nothing was ever done. Of course, <laughs> nothing has been done since then. When I found out about the program, uh, shortly afterwards, I talked to a senior, former NSA senior official, and who was trying to improve relations between Congress and the NSA, and came to see me. And I told him what I had heard, and I said, if this is true, I am going to fry them. And you know what happened? They fried me instead. And they fried four of my friends as well. What happened was, um, I had when I had talked to everybody, and I talked to a lot of people in the executive branch, David Addington, Cheney's uh, lawyer who basically ran the program, um, refused to meet with me. Um, but I talked to other people. I talked to General Hayden, who was heading the NSA at that time, twice about it. Um, I talked to the uh, Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Collection. Um, everybody would listen, but they wouldn't say much, except for General Hayden, who gave me some valuable information that made me even more concerned. And everyone I talked to, every single one, agreed that it was going to leak. And as I said, because it is so obviously illegal. It is so obviously contrary to all the training that intelligence people have had about what they can and cannot do. And they all agreed. Well, I was really amazed it didn't leak for four years until December of 05. And at that time, I opened up the paper and I said, there was a headline across the front of it, and I said, wow, it finally came out. They immediately started an investigation with 20 FBI agents and five US prosecutors. So it was a big full court press. And the White House was determined that the culprit would be found because very few people had been briefed into this program. So they were hope, very hopeful that, that it could be, the leaker could be found this time. Finally, in August of 06, they called me, uh, the House General Counsel called me and said the FBI would like to know if you would voluntarily cooperate with their leak investigation. And I said, yes, I will cooperate, but I will not tell them my sources. So finally, uh, in February of 2007, I went to for a little meeting with them. It turned into an interrogation. And it turns out I was one of their prime suspects because I had so vocally opposed it. I thought at the end of our three-hour talk that they were mollified. They were actually friendly at the end. And so we thought it was all over. My lawyer put it in her dead letter case. And then in late July of 2007, they raided me at 6 o'clock in the morning. They went through my entire house, every drawer, every closet, every mattress, everything, every book, and hauled away cartons and cartons of stuff and my computer and my printer, um, everything they could find. However, I was never indicted. It turns out three, uh, 
Four of my friends were also raided, three of them at the same time that I was. And the fourth one, Tom Drake, was raided in November of that year. You may have seen some of them on TV. Bill Binney is uh, a, uh, the one who developed part of the system that they incorporated into this domestic surveillance, which they could not have uh, done without it. And so he has been talking at a considerable amount, despite the fact that he has four amputations of his legs. Uh, and he is going around, making the rounds, going to Europe, doing everything he can to oppose this. So too is his sidekick, Kirk, Kirk Weeby. He's another one. And then uh, Ed Loomis, who helped Bill develop the system, uh, a, a larger system of which they used only one part. And finally, um, Tom Drake. Tom Drake was indicted. They were going to, my attorney was told that they, were, that they were going to indict Tom and me, or one of us. And they were trying to get a conspiracy charge against all of us, but they finally dropped that. Anyway, in the end, they raided me. Um, they refused to tell me the status of my case. In Tom's case, what happened was they dropped all 10 felony charges for 35 years in prison under the Espionage Act. The reason they used that is not because it was meant to, do, to be used against leakers or whistleblowers. It's because it has the most draconian sentences. So they used that. And four days before the trial, the public trial, they had already gone through hearings dealing with classified information. Four days before the public trial, they dropped all charges. Why? Because they had set him up. It was fraudulent. With both him and me, they couldn't find anything that we had done that they could charge us with. So they made up the charges. In my case, they came in December of 2009, long, two and a half years after my interview with them. And they called my attorney and asked me to plead guilty to felony perjury at the interview. And they read a quote to her. She called me and read it to me. And I said, well, you know, I remember that. Exactly. That sounds like just about an exact quote. But it was a different subject. And of course, they had covered up the top and the bottom of their notes so that she couldn't see the subject. And they were hoping we would not remember. And with Tom, what they did when they raided him, they allegedly found five documents that were not marked as classified, took them to NSA, which obligingly, retroactively classified them. And then tried to, those were the main five charges against him, and then they built on those and said that he had uh, obstructed justice by trying to delete some things from his computer, normal deletions. Anyway, that is the story. Tom is now very, very active also on the speaking circuit. So Tom Drake and Bill Binney, when you see them. There was also a frontline piece on May 13th, which is still available online that is two hours, but basically gives you the whole, the whole storyline, puts it in context for people who can't follow it uh, um, themselves. 
So what is my message to you from my story? My message to you is that there is no one who is untouchable. I thought I was protected by legislative privilege, by separation of powers. I thought they would never dare to try and string up a congressional staffer who had been in charge of their budget and their oversight. Well, it didn't bother them at all. It didn't bother them at all. All of us are vulnerable, especially those who are leading opinion leaders, opinion leaders and dissidents on policy of any kind. You may have seen that DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, regards anti-abortionists as potential terrorists, former military as potential terrorists, gun owners as potential terrorists. I hope I'm on the list. I'd better be. If you're not on the list, you're not doing enough. Indeed, I often wonder the, the absence of congressional opposition to this and other opposition by, and the failure of reporters to take this up. I'm wondering what they have on them. You know? I'm just wondering if in key times they don't pull something out. And the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court yes. justices. And the Supreme Court. Like the one that approved Obamacare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I want you to know when you click that I agree button online, you're giving away your privacy. It's uh, commercial tracking is equally bad. But the big difference, what's the big difference when people say, oh, well, they all track you. Who cares? You know, the government tracks you too. The government has enormous power and control over you. Enormous. They can, they can string you up for something if they look far enough. There are so many regulations. They can do the, stick the IRS on you, Jeff knows. Um, they, you know, they can do dirty tricks. They can do so much against you. And it's just, uh, and at the very minimum, what you're going to find is that the only news you will hear eventually is what the government wants you to hear. That's what's going to happen. So in conclusion, I contend that government and business buying both is rampant and is totally out of control. And we need to focus on this at both the state and national levels. Terrorism is never going to conquer the United States. We have to get this in perspective. It will never bring us to our knees. But this will bring us to our knees. It will destroy our republic. It will destroy our liberty. Unless we act, it will only worsen. Because data mining and data collection is going to become ever more effective. They will not willingly give it up, as you have seen. In fact, there was a court case in which another gentleman was sent to jail for resisting NSA, partly. They tried to find something on him, and they might have framed him, too. But anyway, it was the head of Quest Communications. And he did go to jail. He is now out, and he's writing a book. But in his submission, 
he revealed he was not allowed to use the NSA defense at court. That's another thing. They, they pulled state secrets, so he could not use that as his defense. But he was approached six months before 9-11 to give NSA access to his telecommunications fiber optic lines. He consulted his general counsel, and the general counsel said it was unconstitutional, so he told them no, and he ended up in prison. This is a grassroots, bipartisan issue. There is no politician you can trust with this kind of power, not Republican or Democrat, as has been well shown. We need to get active on this. We need to make sure that every single person who is nominated for, or runs for national office must declare himself on this issue so the voters know where he stands. Finally, the last closing thought is that I want you to know that Glenn Greenwald, the, the primary reporter on the Snowden uh, documents, has been saying for some time that he has saved the worst. By far the worst was yet to come. I was hoping, hoping that he found the extremely compartmented intelligence programs that revealed who they were targeting. And we were told by a fellow named Russell Tice that they were tracking specifically all the elites, basically. You know, it was all three branches. It was Congress and congressional staff. It was judges, attorneys, international firms. It was um, their own executive branch people. I guess to see if they were towing the line, not leaking. People at the White House and the State Department, they're actually going after their own people. And by the way, Jim Risen, who broke the story originally, said when General Petraeus was um, found by his emails, by the way, by the emails database that the FBI had, this whole story came out. Um, when General Pacheas uh, was kicked out of the CIA, uh, as head of CIA because of the affair he was having, Jim Risen said to me, the surveillance state has started eating its own. This is an example of what can happen. And so for over 12 years now, this program has become embedded in concrete practically. It is going to be an enormous fight to get this out of here. But in the meantime, they have electronic files. They've lied and said they don't have files. It's automatically filed in the database under your telephone number, your, your computer IP address, your, your email address. It's all filed automatically when it comes in. For 12 years, they've been collecting files on you.
earlier today on, on Lars Larson's show, a, a, a successful businessman called up to report that his six banking accounts had all been shut down because one of them was a, an account he had money in for his gun collecting activity and stuff. The others were his multiple business accounts, his uh, child uh, college fund accounts and whatnot. And he was told by Bank of America, Umqua Bank, uh, Bank, that they were complying with a request from the Department of Justice to cease business with people who are engaging in transactions with uh, guns and ammunition. And so when he brought that up here, I'm listening to you tonight and thinking, well, how would the banks know whose accounts to look at if the NSA and surveillance weren't telling them? And so would you, su would you su suspect that it was the Department of Justice, NSA, informing Umqua Bank that this person has this, will you help us or shut them down? I don't know that it would be, if this was federal government policy, you heard? Yeah, it, they're doing it, it's a volunteer thing. They're asking them all the major banks voluntary, to yeah. voluntarily cease business with account holders who are involved in guns and ammunition transactions. As I said, some of this is incredibly intrusive. Some of the things that have been mentioned under the business records provision other than communications include things like your credit rating, your credit transactions, your banking transactions. So if that's the case, certainly. Now, there is more to the question and answer session than that. I stopped it there because I wanted to get the rest of Alan Frankovich's Gladio and finish it in this episode. We're going to continue almost where we left off. I'm just going to repeat for context one remark by the principal commentator and convicted bomber, Vincenzo Vinciguerra. When the Pateno attack occurred, in spite of it being an attack against the Carabinieri, where three Carabinieri died, they decided it was more convenient for them to cover it up than to act against the person responsible. The motive was, above all, political. And even today, they hide behind the excuse of national security. There's a TV announcement which is slightly similar to we heard about Olaf Palmer's murder. So they really don't know. They're following all leads and they've already excluded a political motive. Investigators are following all leads. 200 people are being questioned. The voice of the telephone call is being heard by thousands. No one recognizes it. This morning, news of the arrests. The accused are all, apart from the youngest, ex-convicts. Thugs linked to the world of prostitution. Any political motive is excluded. The hypothesis, a personal vendetta against the Carabinieri. There's archive footage of General Mingarelli, commander of the Udine Carabinieri. Today, the commander of Ordine got the announcement of the arrest. We have arrested six people in a combined operation using special forces from Gorizia, Udine and Verona. 
Judge Felice Casson. Il generale Mingarelli all'epoca della strage di Peteano era il comandante della legione. General Mingarelli was commander of Udine Carabinieri. It might seem strange that the commander of Carabinieri was party to the cover-up of an attack where three of his men died. Libero Gualtieri, head of the Italian parliamentary inquiry into Gladio. Nella strage di Peteano. Mingarelli did divert the Pitiano investigation. He was convicted for this, as were other officials. Vincenzo Vinciguela. General Mingarelli undoubtedly knew the existence of Claudio. He knew of the structure running parallel to that of the armed forces and which was running in his jurisdiction, being head of the Cabaneri in the Udin region. He is a key person. This whole thing started with him even if he only gave the orders. Mingarelli was convicted for crimes related to the cover-up of Pateno. Judge Felice Casson. At first he received a sentence of 10 years and 6 months, later reduced to 2.5 years, a sentence he is now serving. On December the 7th, 1970, Prince Valerio Borghese organized neo-fascists in an attempt to overthrow the Italian government. The Italian Ministry of the Interior was to be captured. But after units had moved into position, a telephone call cancelled the entire operation. In the aftermath of the aborted coup, the existence of the parallel structures of Gladio was uncovered. Lieutenant Colonel Amos Spiazzi. Il giorno del golpe borghese, precisamente la sera dell'8 dicembre 1970, ha ricevuto l'ordine di fare una esercitazione di ordine pubblico. The day of the Borghese coup, on the evening of December 8, 1970, I received an order to carry out an exercise in the maintenance of public order using reliable men. What did reliable mean? Men who were neither left nor right-wing extremists. We were to guard certain predetermined locations which could be vulnerable in an uprising. A message told me to activate Plan Triangle. This meant going to those predetermined points together with units of selected men in order to avert any uprising or insurrection. At the time I knew only of a structure made up of people who were anti-communists which could be activated only in the event of an invasion of the nation. I was arrested in 1974 and found myself in an embarrassing situation. The judge was persistently interrogating me until I realized that this judge was probing into what he thought was something revolutionary or unconstitutional. To me it was an organization for national security. 
So I found myself in this situation. My superiors and the judge belong to the same system. Could I tell the judge certain things? No, because of military secrecy. Was it legally right to keep quiet and let him go after innocent people? This was my dilemma. I wanted to talk to my superiors and finally they brought the general to me. The general forbade Colonel Amos Spiazzi to speak. He was General Vito Micelli, head of the Italian Secret Service. Micelli later invoked state secrecy in order to cover up the existence of the Invisible Legion. He made signs not to say anything. The judge noticed it. So he was actually signaling yes, while signaling no. Gianni Flamini, historian. Lì venne alla luce tutta una una organizzazione, soprattutto fondata sul gruppo. An organization materialized based on extreme right-wing groups. The radical right that was the Odin Nuovo in which Piazzi participated as a high-ranking artillery officer one general simply fled when an order for his arrest was issued this was General Nadella who has since remained a fugitive though they say he still receives his salary Lieutenant Colonel Amos Spiazzi. Whilst I was in the barracks, I was called by General Nardella to the officers' club, where he was the chairman, to meet two or three people. I forget their names. This was in 1971-72. I realized that I was essentially dealing with Freemasons. Vincenzo Vinciguela. La Masoneria Internazionale. After the war, international masonry took on the task of participating in the battle against communism. Many army officials, particularly in the high ranks, are masons, as are judges, high-ranking police officials, and cabinati officers. Neo-fascism couldn't stay outside this phenomenon. Licio Gelli, I have written this and I will always stand by it. He worked for SIM, the military intelligence services, during the war. He went to Yugoslavia. Following Piero Parini, Gelli was a convicted fascist. He took part in Italy's double game in the Balkans, where he fought Tito with Germans and the Croats with the English. There he obtained certain secrets which meant that after the war he couldn't be marginalized. He went on to play in the big dirty game of Italian espionage. So his career developed within the framework of the secret services. Licio Gelli Venerable Master of the P2 Masonic Lodge. P2 was composed of the best brains of public life, from the military, from the arts, business, from the civil service or the high finance. We would analyze situations and produce our ideas in writing to MPs. They could read our reports in order to be able to improve things here. 
Vincenzo Vinciquela. La luce più dura. Non un centro di potere occulto. The P2 Lodge wasn't a center of hidden power. Centro di potere palese. Occulto per gli opinioni pubblici. It was a center of real power. Hidden from the public. But not from the state. It has played a very precise role in this battle against communism. And I consider the P2 to be one of those parallel structures which were part of Gladio. It didn't have a military role, but rather a role in internal subversion. Oswald Lewinter. P2 was basically, I guess you, you might call it a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, the company in Italy. The members were people who had been recruited by Jelly for their unswerving loyalty to the cause of anti-communism, I would say conservative democratic principles, and uh, the furtherance of American aims and policies in uh, Western Europe. Nineteen sixty-nine is the year when terrorism really escalates dramatically. The year starts with attacks in the spring inside the various courtrooms and worsens in August. With attacks on a series of moving trains. The climax was the massacre in Milan. The role of Freedom Ventura's group wasn't the most important. Nor were they solely responsible for the Piazza Fontana. They took part in the attack. I explained this during the trial in mid-1972. I stated quite explicitly that others were involved. They were the focal point. They were to take responsibility. They were not alone. Other people took part in the attack. People who weren't from the Padua group and were never identified. Judge Gerardo Ambruso, investigating magistrate. Le indagini per la strada per la strage di Piazza Fontana. The investigations into Piazza Fontana progressed with difficulty. Of five bombs placed that day, this one left victims, and there were many. Eighteen died and eighty were wounded in the attack on the bank. The police never failed to point out, even when they called in the help of international forces, that the investigations pointed to the involvement of anarchist groups. Franco Freda. I was the subject of a bad joke. The judiciary had been manipulated. I was first condemned, then cleared. The verdict was then overturned. I was retried and finally definitely cleared. 
This political and judicial adventure took 13 years of my life. Vincenzo Venziguela. Piazza Fontana è il momento d'arrivo criminale. Piazza Fontana is the climax of an operation that was culminated in the declaration of a state of emergency. More than the military behind the Piazza Fontana, attack one sees the Ministry of the Interior and the Office for Secret Affairs. Frida's group was given the role of executor. They were not the organizers. They simply carried out orders. Judge Gerardo Ambroso, investigating magistrate. Various inquiries show that Guido Ghiannatini had been in Padua during the key days in May. His name was found in Giovanni Ventura's diary. Guido Giannatini, military intelligence. I was an outside collaborator with SID, Secret Services. I gave them information, obviously. Captain Antonio Labruna, Italian Secret Service, 1964 to 1983. Every time Giannettini spoke about his work for Maletti, I didn't understand it, so I made him write it down and give this to Maletti. Guido Giannettini. Maletti was the last one to hear as I worked for the D section of SID. My contact was the head of the section, firstly Colonel Viola, then Colonel Gasker, and General Maletti. Judge Gerardo Ambroso, investigating magistrate. A search was carried out in Guido Giannatini's house. By that time he was already out of the country. We found reports in his house which were similar to others and in a safe deposit box bearing the mark of a particular secret service. The safe deposit box was in a bank in the name of Ventura's mother. Franco Freda. I believe that among the documents found in the safe deposit box, there were several pages containing the addresses of agents working for the American secret services in Italy. Guido Giannatini, Military Intelligence. Initially, I knew only Freda. He had information on a pro-Chinese group he was involved with. It was the first movement of its kind in Italy. The first groups came out of the Venice region. Consequently, since I lived in Rome, and Freda in Padua, and Ventura traveled frequently between Venice and Rome, he put me in contact with Ventura, and it was he who had direct contact with the extra-parliamentary left in Venice. Franco Freda. In my opinion, Giannettini's modest stature didn't allow for him to be of any use, not even passively. 
I don't see what use his work as a journalist could have for the secret services of this republic. Vincenzo Vinciguera. They are a provincial group who helped the Secret Service, as did Ordine Nuovo, Avangardia, and other less well-known groups. They carried forward a strategy which entailed an infiltration of the left. They all did it. Ordine Nuovo, Avangardia, and obviously the Pado group. Their attacks were attributed to the left. Judge Gerardo Ambroso. The first stage was to make attacks which would be blamed on the left. The second stage was the actual infiltration of the groups on the left, including these extra-parliamentary groups to carry out the attacks. These groups were instrumental in increasing the social and political tension in the country. Franco Freda. Neither I nor my friends belong to any political party. We constituted those little forces one defines as extra-parliamentary. Frida signed his reports, Agent T. The Padua group consists of Frida calling himself a National Socialist, but who in fact worked for the Italian Secret Services. Massimiliano Facini, who worked for the Italian Secret Services, something which General Moletti, as head of Section D, later admitted Gianni Casalini, informer for the Secret Services, which was finally been officially recognized, was also a member. Limiting ourselves to three names, we find that in a small group, three members of the leadership were operatives of the Italian military secret services. Guido Giannatini, Military Intelligence. When rumors started to circulate of my being called to testify at the trial against Freda and Ventura, I interrupted my contact with General Maletti and communicated with Captain Labruna. Captain Antonio Labruna, Italian Secret Service, 1964 to 83. Gianetti was not taken to the frontier. Of his own accord, he said that he had some work to do in France, some journalistic work, so he left. He was simply accompanied to the airport by a low-ranking official. Gianetti already had in his possession a return ticket to Paris. A ticket which wasn't bought for him by the services, but by himself, who has this ticket now. For professional reasons, we are careful, even with matters we can't explain, so I have the ticket. Guido Giannatini. 
colui che quando venne a sapere che era imminente When he found out that they were about to search my house that I was being investigated La Bruna took me to the airport fu appunto La Bruna che mi accompagnò a Fiumicino 